Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Buenos tardes, mi amigo. Hola, my good friends. Cinco de mayo on Tuesday and I'd hoped we'd see each other again oh yes welcome to Mikey Likes You it's another big episode buddy that's a promise um, today I welcome a guy I really, really like. I try to continually have guys and gals on the show that I actually respect and care about their opinion. Um, you know, so it makes it easier for you guys to listen to the show and actually trust what's going on. Paul Saladino, Dr. Paul Saladino, he is the author of a book that is now available everywhere as of the day that I am recording this intro. Uh, the Carnivore Code is available pretty much everywhere books are sold. And even if you do not like eating meat much, I think this book is very useful. And here's why. Dr. Saladino doesn't really have an agenda. He's a guy who's very passionate about nutrition and health. He's an actual MD, a physician, and he's done you know trial and error with all the different stuff that a lot of you have given given a shot when it comes to nutritional. Well, my puppy just went insane. When it comes to nutritional kind of protocols, the paleo, the vegan, the keto, the whole thing, and he's finally stumbled upon something, and it's based around nose to tail um, ingestion of of uh, animals, mostly red meat, and um, he's really, really, really happy and proud of the benefits that he's had, and he wants to share that. He does not care if you're a vegan. He does not care if you think the carnivore diet is silly. He just wants to share with you his findings, both from research and from his own uh, experimentation with his very muscular body, mm, his taut muscular body. Um, but, uh, I think we had a really good conversation, not only about, uh, eating meat and the benefits, but also the kind of ethical quagmire you get into when it comes to eating modern meat, um, modern farming, and then also how to apply the carnivore diet for you, because there is, uh, a couple different kind of takes on a carnivore diet in the carnivore code. Thank you, Gloria. Appreciate it. Go ahead and just make as much noise as possible, please. We got a puppy, adopted it. Yes, of course. Don't don't at me with your hate. And we it's a, a rescue, but we got her. She was like three or four weeks old, and she was so small. And now she is so big, and she's only like fifteen weeks. She's gonna be fucking massive, <laughs> but she's sweet. She's sweet as can be. Just a little annoying. Um, anyway, so here we go, Doctor. Paul Saladino. Again, the book is The Carnivore Code. Go pick it up. It's very interesting. It's a lot of great information, and he gives you a lot of great information in this here interview starting now. Uh, thank you for joining me. And you're you're a legit board-certified MD, a, a psychiatrist? 
Well, I don't call myself a psychiatrist. I think of myself as a physician, but I am mm -hmm. board certified in psychiatry and as a physician nutrition specialist. So, yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. I did not mean that in, in any way as a slight. I all, I've always said like an MD is an MD is an MD. I, I, you go to medical school, you're an MD. I don't give a shit what your specialization is. You're a doctor. People and, just don't understand. You know, they, they conflate psychiatry with psychology and they don't quite understand the way that we go to medical school and we do residency. But yeah, I did my residency in psychiatry, but throughout it, I've always just kind of felt like specialties in general are bad for patients because they 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 create schism between the the organ systems of the body and i think anyone that's been in medicine or anyone that's had struggled with their own health issues knows that you don't treat the brain just by treating the brain you don't treat the gut just by treating the gut you don't treat the heart just by treating the heart they're all connected so it's kind of this false you know this this, this false separation of humans into organ systems but yeah i think it's it's so, it's so connected and that's why i think nutrition and biochemistry is at the center of all of it and why is it that, at least in my opinion, and, and as a layperson, I do have a, a little bit more of an educated understanding of, of uh, the training that an MD goes through, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but my my on-air partner in, in four or five different projects for many years is Dr. Drew. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I he's he's one of my closest friends and also my, my professional partner. So I, I get this insight kind of to the behind the scenes of it. And I, I don't know if you're aware of this as well as Dr. Drew's like a full on meathead. He loves pumping iron. He loves, you know, talking to performance, nutrition and stuff. So he, he is constantly bemoaning the problem that there isn't a real emphasis on nutrition in medical school. Is, has that been your experience? And do you find that to be as much of a problem as he does? I absolutely do. And there's also no focus on nutrition in any residency, in any residency at all. And so this is what kind of drives me crazy is people will say like, oh, you know, I, anytime I think we, we, we step up and we step outside of the box and challenge ideas, people will look, especially as physicians, people will look for ways to discredit us. And they, they might, some of them try to pretend that some residency or another residency is more trained in, in nutrition or is more trained in, in human health and, and how to help people become healthier, avoid chronic disease. But the very sad fact of the matter is that there is no residency uh, after medical school that has any training in nutrition, even in cardiology. I mean, I've talked to multiple cardiologists. I worked as a physician assistant in cardiology for four years before I went back to medical school and, um, and then uh, continued my medical training in that way. But it's just been... It's been it's been sad to see that not only is it that basically there's no training in nutrition in medical school, there's also no training in residency of any any type, no matter what residency you go to. And so anyone who is thinking about nutrition, and I think that the sharpest and most forward-thinking doctors who are putting all the pieces together are thinking about this, because we have to think about this. This is at the center of what causes human health and disease, are are all self-taught. You know, we're yeah. all reading articles, we're all reading textbooks, we're all going back to our medical school biochemistry and thinking about it from a nutritional perspective. We're having to put the pieces together ourselves, um, which is why people like Dr. Drew and other physicians who are doing this work and the work that I hope to contribute to is so important that I think that at the, at the root of this, we need to retrain our physicians because we all, we all have handicaps coming out of medical school. Right. And, uh, you know, speaking of like how other physicians view it. I was, um, I don't know shit about shit when it comes to being a doctor. I don't. And I think that more people need to, in the day and age of like 
readily available information for everyone. I don't think enough people really understand that. Like, I really don't have a vast understanding of uh, human biology and because and, and, I'm, I'm a layperson. I, I did not go to medical school. But what I do understand and what I do know backwards and forwards is talking into a microphone or looking into a camera and doing that professionally. I've been doing it my entire adult life. And I was appalled at your appearance on the TV show, The Doctors, not only because of what I viewed to be really unprofessional behavior as a physician, but what I knew to be un unbelievably, egregiously unprofessional behavior as broadcasters, how they just kind of teed you up and assaulted you and wouldn't even allow you to, to, speak, your, to speak your truth. Yeah, if people have not seen that episode, um, I don't recommend watching it if you don't want to get very angry. <laughs> yeah. But you can certainly check it out. So basically what happened on the Doctors TV show was that there were a few girls, two sisters that had autoimmune disease. They'd previously been diagnosed with lupus, which is sort of a systemic autoimmune disease with multiple manifestations. And they had laboratory markers of positive lupus. They made dietary changes um, toward a carnivore diet and then it started eating an entirely carnivore diet. And basically completely reversed their autoimmune disease. So the doctors invited them on the show. And because I had worked with them and because I'm super interested in animal-based diets and the carnivore diet, I went on the show in person and they were on the show virtually because they couldn't make the taping in Los Angeles. What ended up happening was that they got to tell their story. And, and then the doctors on the stage, Travis Stork and these other, this cadre of doctors on the stage really tried subtly, not so subtly to make them look like they had eating disorders or to make them look like they were crazy. And then they ganged up on me. Not only did they put four doctors on the stage to try to gang up on me, they had another doctor in the audience and another doctor that they brought in via Skype. So it was basically six on one. And you know broadcasting, you know how TV works. They can edit out whatever they want. They can talk over you. They can have six people attack you at the same time. I went into it thinking, this is great. Network TV is going to hear about the carnivore diet. They want to have a debate. I'm down for that. Any day of the week, I will rumble with anyone on this issue. And I had articles and research and references that I sent them. And during the taping, it was just them screaming at me. And it was just hands being thrown in the air and these <clears throat> childish temper tantrums from them and basically ad hominem attacks. And that's, that's my perspective. I'll let the listener of this podcast go and watch and make their own decisions. But it was pretty frustrating because I've had lots of debates with people. And I think sharing ideas between people who don't always agree on everything is very productive, but this wasn't that <clears throat> this was just them <clears throat> deciding that they had a, um, they had an agenda and, and they do have an agenda. The doctor's TV show is really connected with a lot of plant-based interests and David Katz and a lot of plant-based ideology. And they were just trying to make me look bad. And unfortunately, I think it mostly backfired because almost everyone I've ever talked to who's listened to it on both sides of the issue felt like it was complete baloney what they did. And it was just a mockery of normal human respectful interaction. So I want a round two, you know, <laughs> yeah, we just, you should, you we should need a, we need a version two, you know, just like Connor and Khabib have to fight again. Uh, you know, like I, I'm, I gotta go back on the dockers and we're going to rumble this time because I'm going to be ready and they're not going to be able to use their Hollywood tactics on me again. And we will actually have a real conversation. I've invited all of them on my podcast and they, they don't, they're not willing to, to show up and actually have a scientific discussion. And I do appreciate um, some of the more outspoken vegan voices who will 
willingly and openly engage with you because, like you said, I think kind of having discussions in a civil way um, about things that you disagree with is 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 important and it's valuable. You know, um, where did the where did the carnivore diet and and the carniv- subsequently the carnivore code where did it develop in your life? How did this all? What was the impetus to all of it? It was my own medical issues. It was it was all my own medical issues and my personal experience working first as a physician assistant in medicine and then in medical school training. So throughout my life, I had eczema and asthma. My dad is a doctor. My mom is a nurse practitioner. So I got over-medicated as a kid massively. I got theophylline in my, in my uh, applesauce growing up. I was being forced, I was forced to take inhalers. And I also remember being forced to eat pea soup, which at the time I hated. And now I understand why. But so I was forced to do things that I didn't want to do. I didn't want to take theophylline. I didn't want to take albuterol. I didn't want to have asthma as a kid. My eczema got worse as I got older. When I was in college, I had some really bad eczema flares. Medical school, I had horrible eczema on my knees and elbows as I was doing jujitsu. It was really limiting for me and led to some massive complications. I had eczema throughout residency as well. And so for me, I think as I was thinking about medicine, so if we back up one step, I went to college at William & Mary. I took six years off. I traveled around the world and got to do a lot of really cool things like through hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and being a ski bum and, and climbing a lot of mountains and doing some ski mountaineering. And at that time in my life, I was really enamored with just exploring the natural world. Eventually, the, the chemistry brain turned back on and said, you know what? I really like biochemistry. I want to get back to this. I went to PA school hoping that it would give me some balance, but not really knowing what the medical landscape looked like and not really thinking about nutrition yet. Once I started practicing as a physician assistant in cardiology, though, pretty quickly, it just didn't feel right to me. I just thought, why are we doing this? Why are we just treating symptoms with medications? Why isn't anyone asking questions about what causes human disease? That's the most interesting question to me. And we're just not equipped to ask it. You know, medicine doesn't equip us to ask it. As a physician assistant, I'm working for doctors who are intelligent and well-meaning, but they just say, think in the box, think in the heart box. They're doing this. You know, they're saying, think in the heart box, don't think outside of the box. And as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, I even knew then you can't just think in the heart box. Clearly the cause of a problem in your heart is not in the heart. It's systemic, it's inflammation. Cause of a problem in your brain is not usually in your brain. It's somewhere else in the human body and it's affecting the brain because we are this interconnected web of systems in the human body. And yet what we do in medicine is we treat symptoms with medications that just play whack-a-mole. They just push the symptom down and another symptom pops up somewhere else. So I was tasked with giving people statin drugs and beta blockers, which caused horrible side effects, but no one was really helping me or encouraging me to think, what is causing coronary artery disease? What is causing heart attacks? What is causing atherosclerosis? What is causing high blood pressure in the first place? And those were the questions that I was super driven to answer. So I went back to medical school thinking, I am going to understand how to integrate this. I'm going to really learn how the systems fit together. And concurrent in that process was my own worsening eczema. At that time, I really knew, hey, this is food related. There is something going on with food. Food is this huge input for humans. We can affect people's physiology massively with milligram quantities of drugs. We take in kilogram quantities of food every day. Right. These are multiple orders of magnitude, 10 to 100,000 times, you know, difference in terms of the magnitude of this input, right? A kilogram is a thousand grams. A milligram is one one thousandth of a, of a gram. So we have multiple orders of magnitude between these two. 
Why do we not think that kilogram quantities of food composed of molecules that are bioactive is going to create health or disease in humans? Food is like the biggest medicine, and it's, that's cliche to say today, but it is. It's just in terms of actual substance, it's it's just as bioactive as medications, and yet we ignore it. And so I thought, okay, and, and, which is very strange. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but like I, I again, as a, as looking at it from the layperson who's very interested in this. I, I don't understand how reasonable, smart people that I know can't equate putting uh, a banana or a, a piece of steak in their mouth and the metabolic processes being a chemical reaction to that to that object. It's the exact same thing as swallowing a pill and then the, the following kind of uh, the subsequent chemical reactions happening in the body. It's, it's, it's really no different, but people refuse to look at it the same way. I think that it, 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 part of it is, is, you know, the fault of Western medicine. I can't even tell you how often I've heard from people, my doctor said this isn't related to food, talking about GI issues, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, IBS, eczema like I had, asthma. If you go to 100 doctors, probably 98 will tell you there's no relation to food because within Western medicine, we've become too evidence limited. We want to be evidence-based and we want to be making our decisions based on evidence. But I think that we've taken that too far and so many physicians now are evidence-limited. If there's not a study, a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study to show that food affects XYZ, eczema, psoriasis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, your physician is very likely just to say, there's no evidence that food affects that. And if that's the party line, then how is anyone going to move forward? And we just end up kind of in, a, in these stalemates where people are just stuck taking medication after medication and not changing food. And that's really why I do the work I do is to give people this idea that there are more tools out there. And there are even more tools than paleo diets. And that's where we'll get into the carnivore diet. But there are lots of dietary tools. Diet is a tool, number one, just using diet as a tool is a huge success for most people. And then there are a lot of dietary tools that have not even been considered because we have for so long thought of plants as critical to the human diet, but we can get into that. So yeah, it's a very interesting thing. And it's just a shame that we don't think of that at all. So in my own journey, I had eczema, it was horrible. And no matter what I did in terms of dietary iterations, it would not get better. And I did vegan many, many years ago. I was raw vegan for about seven months and I lost 25 pounds of muscle mass. Yeah. And I'm not a big guy, you know, I'm 5'9", 170. So I'm not huge. I've got a good amount of muscle, but I'm not huge. I was five, nine and 140 pounds at that point in my life. So very, very skinny. And that was not a good thing for me. I also had horrible GI issues and I was a nightmare to be around because of all the farts I had when I was eating vegan all the time. So right. I went into a paleo diet, which I'd done in the past and I got some of the muscle back. I felt better, but my eczema continued to be bad. And I kept trying to iterate and refine a paleolithic diet, this kind of ancestral idea, like what did our ancestors eat? That has always been fascinating to me. And the paleolithic diet says, well, our ancestors eat, didn't eat many grains. That's become more mainstream today with things like all this gluten awareness and gluten mm -hmm. sensitivity, which I think is a great step in the right direction. A paleo diet also says our ancestors didn't eat a whole lot of beans. Okay. Didn't eat a whole lot of beans and they didn't eat a lot of dairy. And I think those are all totally true statements. And the removal of grains, beans, and dairy helps a lot of people. It wasn't enough for me, unfortunately, and my eczema continued. And I thought, okay, what's next? So then you can go down the spectrum to something like autoimmune paleo. I cut out nuts and seeds. Helped a little bit, but I still had eczema. And then you can cut out nightshades, 
cut out those, still had eczema, maybe incrementally better, still had eczema. And I kind of threw my hands up at that point. I thought, what is left? I know these plants are so valuable for me. I was eating basically lettuce and avocado and berries and grass-fed meat and some squash and some mushrooms. And I was like, man, my eczema is still horrible. It actually got to be some of the worst it ever was in my whole life. And then I started thinking, and I heard Jordan Peterson on the Joe Rogan podcast talking about his improvements in sleep apnea and autoimmune issues, the improvements that his daughter Michaela had and her autoimmune issues with an entirely animal-based diet. And I thought, that's crazy. You can't do that. (laughs) And my second thought was, I'll give it a try. And I did. And I got really interested because my eczema went away completely within a few weeks. And psychologically, I felt better than I had in a very, very long time, which was surprising to me because I didn't really think that I had depression or anxiety or any of these issues before. But when I cut out all the plants and went entirely animal-based, and we can talk about what that looks like, it's not just steak for me, I felt better psychologically. I felt more calm, more poised, more happy, and my eczema went away. And I thought, this is really cool. Mainstream medicine this is gonna, says this is going to kill me. I don't believe that's the case. Let me do my research. And that was the beginning of a very deep rabbit hole, which culminated in the book, The Carnivore Code, which is coming out this week when this podcast gets released and many other things. So it's been a really fascinating journey to go down. It was mostly spurred by those two things. The fact that as a PA, I wasn't really satisfied with the mainstream ideology or paradigm. And then I had my own eczema and autoimmune issues, which got a lot better when I cut out the plants that everybody says are so valuable for humans in my own diet. As, a, as, a, as someone who was not only a, a physician, but also um, someone who clearly was very invested in the idea of health, you know, you're this active, super active person who was into jujitsu and rock climbing and doing all these things. Were you even, even in the face of this objective evidence that this is working for you, were you like, this is impossible. I'm not eating any plants and I'm eating nothing but, but animal flesh. This, this is crazy. Well, I think once I started it, I quickly realized it was going to work just fine and that I was going to feel good. And, and I started reading articles that were drawing and really calling into question a lot of this ideology around plants and benefits of plants. It was mostly when I first heard Jordan talk about it and when some of my friends talked about it that I said, that's not right. We need these plant minerals or these plant nutrients, these, phytos- these phytonutrients or these polyphenols. We need those. They're beneficial for humans, right? Or we need fiber. But once I experienced it for myself and started doing the research pretty quickly, it became clear that, oh, there's a whole, there's a whole other way to look at this. And that's very different. Is, is that, I mean, that's me. I'm, I'm meathead number one. Like I've been in, invested in the idea of like not only physique alterations, but human performance. And that's my go-to right there is, is, is not just the fiber, but like the, the micronutrients that come along with, with certain fruits and vegetables that I, I've been just, just hammered. I've had that hammered into my head that, that as is equally, if not more important than my protein intake is like, I got to get the, the potassium, I got to get my vitamin C, I got to get all these things that I can only get from, uh, you know, from citrus and from berries and from my leafy cruciferous greens and all that stuff. Well, that's just, just not true. Not true. And it's so fascinating to look at that. And we can break those down individually if you like. I mean, the, the, the very controversial statement that I will make now is that there, you can get everything you need to be an optimal human from eating animals nose to tail. Now, the key part of that is nose to tail, meaning you have to eat the organ meats as well, like our ancestors always have. But if you look at micronutrients, and I think you are spot on here, that micronutrients are what determine 
how well we live and that there's a broad, pervasive micronutrient deficiency of, of all types of micronutrients within our 2020 westernized society. And we can talk about vitamins specifically or minerals or peptides or other nutrients. But as humans, we have been eating a less and less nutrient, micronutrient dense diet. A lot of people, when they come to health and fitness, they think macronutrients first. And that's very powerful. Adjusting the ratios of protein, fat, and carbohydrate, which are the macronutrients in your diet, can have profound effects on your physique. But if you want to feel good, the magic is really the micronutrients. Minerals like copper, zinc, selenium, manganese, boron, potassium, right? Vitamins, all of your broad spectrum of B vitamins, everything from thymine to riboflavin to niacin to folate, pyridoxine, uh, pantothenate, B12, so many different B vitamins, biotin. And then even beyond that, there are other nutrients that we need that are micronutrients like creatine or choline or carnosine or carnitine or vitamin K2 specifically. And so these are what are the, these are the special sauce, right? Once you're getting enough calories and you've got your macros, the protein, fat, and carbohydrates figured out, if you want to thrive, getting the micronutrients in your diet is what's going to give you the difference between like a regular car and a freaking turbocharged Porsche, because that's what allows your biochemistry to really run like a quote, well-oiled machine. Now you are absolutely right. The mainstream perspective is that these are coming. We need some of these from plants. Some people will say, oh, you get some from animals, but you need a lot from plants. And that's totally false. If you look at these nutrients, there's a couple of really interesting points here. The first point is there is that there are no nutrients found in plants that you cannot get in animal foods, animal meat and organs in more bioavailable forms and in higher amounts. So that's a pretty striking statement. I'll say it again. There are no nutrients found in plants that you cannot get in more bioavailable forms and in greater amounts in animal foods. And there's one caveat to that. It'll be vitamin C, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But you can get plenty of potassium in, in meat. You can get plenty of uh, selenium in meat. You can get plenty of these nutrients that people say are valuable from plants, folate, riboflavin. They're more bioavailable in animal foods, and they're in greater quantities. Now, the flip side is not true, and it's, this is a very interesting sort of singularity. There are many nutrients in animal foods that you cannot get in plant foods. And this is where the really incredibly indispensable role of animal foods lies. So all those C nutrients I mentioned earlier, creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, all the B vitamins, well, most of the B vitamins, much more bioavailable in animal foods. The C, the C nutrients, creatine, carnitine, choline, carnosine, they don't occur at all in plant foods or in any particular, in any appreciable quantity. Vitamin K2 doesn't occur in any appreciable quantity in plant foods. People may say, oh, what about natto? It's fermented soybeans. Yeah, you can get some. That's from the bacteria in natto. Nobody eats natto in the West, and natto is only a certain uh, array of the menaquinones, which are the different types of vitamin K2. So to get the full spectrum of vitamin K2, you have to eat real animal foods, like things like liver or egg yolks or muscle meat from grass-fed animals. Vitamin B12 doesn't occur in plant foods. No matter how you slice it, you can't get it from dirt. You can't get it from lake water, James Wilkes. He's totally full of it. You can't get B12 without eating animal foods. So there are lots of animal-based nutrients, what I like to call zoonutrients, that only occur in animal foods. So there's a real, there's a real 
imbalance here. Animal foods are clearly valuable and they have unique value. Let me talk about vitamin C real quickly because that's probably the main one that comes up. People think, well, I have to eat plants to get vitamin C and you absolutely do not. We know from studies in the 1940s that you can cure scurvy with as little as 10 milligrams of vitamin C per day. They actually took conscientious objectors to the war and they gave them scurvy. And then they gave them variable doses of vitamin <laughs> C and they gave them 10, 25, 70 milligrams of vitamin C. And they all recovered from scurvy in the same amount of time. And they all looked the same clinically. There was no difference in the amount uh, in, in, their, in their sort of clinical recovery from scurvy with even 10 milligrams of vitamin C. We hear this story so often about limeys, these British sailors that had to take limes on ships because they couldn't get vitamin C and they'd get scurvy without them. That's true, but the other thing to notice is that fresh meat also cures scurvy. There's plenty of vitamin C in fresh animal meat and organs. And in fact, you can get a robust amount of highly bioavailable vitamin C in things like liver or thymus or other organs, kidney. We don't always eat these today because we're separated from our ancestral roots, but many people who have ethnic origin will have eaten these foods in the past. But I don't take a vitamin C supplement. I don't have scurvy, nor do I have issues related to inadequate vitamin C. I don't have oxidative stress or any of these other problems. So to say that we need plant foods for optimal vitamin C is, that's not totally been proven yet. And I think that there's good evidence that humans can thrive on moderate amounts of vitamin C found in animal foods, especially if they are eating nose to tail. Now, I don't really have a problem with people supplementing with vitamin C if they prefer to. There's not a whole lot of good clinical data from an interventional perspective that that actually helps people um, uh, at a broad level. It's, it's like, we don't actually know how much vitamin C humans need. And a lot of people are supplementing with way too much vitamin C, in my opinion, and you're creating breakdown products of the vitamin C like oxalates that can be harmful for humans. So when people take vitamin C, they think of it as a panacea, probably because of Linus Pauling and other, other thinkers like this, but there's really no good evidence that 500 or a thousand milligrams of vitamin C does anything for humans except predispose us to higher incidence of kidney stones. So we the whole vitamin C argument is controversial and complicated, but the take home with that, with regard to that is that there's plenty of vitamin C in animal foods if they are fresh and if they are eaten nose to tail, meaning from the whole animal as our ancestors did. But to your point, and I'm rambling here, I'll wrap it up in a second, I apologize. There, there are so many micronutrients that we must get from animal foods if we want to thrive. And they're really, we don't need plants for these micronutrients. Animals are almost always a better source of these micronutrients for humans. And anyone who has eaten liver or made animal foods the majority of their diet can really attest to this fact. I mean, it's, I don't know if you've had liver recently. I love to I have, yeah. yeah. It's like rocket fuel. I mean, I don't know what you experience, but when I give people raw liver or when I give people, um, you know, desiccated organ supplements, like the kind that we just developed at, at my company, Heart and Soil, they, they feel something. They can feel a difference. It's, it's absolutely true. And I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a world and, and, and kind of, my mother is Mexican. I'm, I'm half and, and um, she was responsible for feeding me the majority of the time. Um, I, I ate a lot of tongue, heart liver, um, you know, tripe, a lot of the really whack parts of the body that, um, you know, most, most Americans are just not accustomed to eating. And, uh, I, I, absolutely believe in the value of, of organ meats. 
What I will say, though, is that I knew that I not only had a cultural kind of upbringing like that, but I had a, a an evolutionary kind of attachment to those foods in the same way that you were talking about how most people seem to not <clears throat> not really uh, enjoy uh, grains and legumes. What about someone like me who has a 2000 year history of family members that are eating legumes? Have I actually changed, you know, because I've my great, great, great grandfather was eating nothing but beans. Have I have, do I have a, a better ability to deal with foods like that? You may, you may, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to say. Um, generally we think of like, you need at least a thousand years, you know, you maybe need 20 to 30 generations of people, but you really hit the nail on the head there. You may have a better ability to deal with these, but are they the ideal food for you? No, probably yeah. not. And this is the point, point that I make in the carnivore code in my book is that throughout our evolution as humans, we've really, we've really favored animal foods over plant foods. And sure, you can survive on plant foods from time to time, but they are probably fallback foods. They're survival foods. So is it possible that with your history, with your genetics, you have a little bit better ability to detoxify or to deal with the toxins that come in beans? Yes, perhaps. Does it mean you should make them a lot of your diet? Probably not if you want to thrive. I think most humans have the same underlying blueprint, which is that we are programmed to eat animal foods and to seek animal foods as the majority of our diet. Sure, you can eat some plants from time to time for color, variety, texture, et cetera, and our ancestors almost certainly did. But I think that it's really clear from the anthropologic record, from the ethnographic record, and looking at currently living hunter-gatherers that they favor and they seek out animal foods first. And if they have animal foods, they don't really need the plant foods. The plant foods are fallback foods. They are survival foods. Yeah, it's definitely a plan B. I mean, if you look at it from a, from a evolutionary and, and a natural standpoint, and um, that, that was going to be kind of at the heart and soul of my next question and, um, or heart and soil, pardon the pun. But <laughs> like, I, I am a big believer and proponent of eating animals because I think that the animal of homo sapien is it's almost irrefutable. We are carnivores and that's what we do. That's what's chemically appropriate for us. But I also absolutely understand the moral argument when, when you look at how a lot of animals get to our plate, how do you make heads or tails uh, with that? Because, um, as someone who has taken the time to like research sustainable farming and, 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 and really healthy and, and I think moral ways to get my meat. And also I hunt for the, for the majority of people, that's just not really an option. How, how can we encourage eating an animal based diet with also not being what I think to be, you know, kind of immoral. Oh, I, I think this is a great point. Thank you for bringing it up. Factory farming is horrible. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and I would never support factory farming. There's a lot of nuance here that isn't really communicated to the broad populace, though. So as you're suggesting, there are more and more farms now, Belcampo in California, White Oak Pastures in Georgia. There's a farm here in Austin called Shirttail Creek. There's lots of farms that are doing what is called regenerative agriculture, which is essentially recreating an ecosystems-based type of agriculture where cows and lamb or sheep and animals are grass-fed, they're grass-finished, and they get to move around different pastures. They regenerate the land. It's been shown to increase the carbon-carrying capacity of the soil. It's actually been shown to be carbon-negative 
from in, in life cycle analyses, and it increases the biodiversity of the soil. It increases the soil's microbiome, the mycorrhizal network in the soil. It creates healthy grass, and it creates very healthy animals because these animals are essentially living the way their ancestors have for millions of years, right. the way that humans should be, right? You know, cows came from these animals called aurochs, and they're related to bison or buffalo. Well, bison roamed the plains. They would eat grass, then move on somewhere else. And then when the, and then when the bison would move away, that grass would regrow even higher and thicker because while the bison were eating the grass, they were peeing and pooping there, creating natural fertilizer. So they were moving the soil and they just created the, some of the most rich soil in the world. I mean, the center of the U.S. was incredibly rich before we turned it into a monocrop agriculture, uh, you know, haven and destroyed the soil there. But the reason the soil in the center part of the country was so rich was because of grassland ecosystems involving bison, millions and millions of grassland ruminants were there. And so there's clearly an answer here. And there's clearly an evolutionarily um, ecological precedent for how to do this. The problem is that we vote with our dollars. And most people would rather be blind to this and pay $3 less a pound for Costco factory farmed meat than they would to support, than they would, than they would, you know, than they would prefer to support this grass fed, grass finished regenerative agriculture which is a little more expensive, but better for the soil, better for ecosystems, better for their future generations. So sadly, as humans, I don't think this story has been told enough. And it's super important to tell that if we care about the persistence of life on this planet, or we care about other ecosystems, if we care about our generations and the generations beyond us having a, quote, healthy planet to live on, regenerative agriculture is, is just required. We need animals on the land to regenerate the land. Monocrop agriculture is destroying our, our planet is destroying the soil. And so removing ruminants is not the answer. Better farming of those ruminants that recreates or mirrors the way they were used to, the way they used to live is absolutely the right answer. So what we need is more people to understand this. We need farm subsidies to be removed from corn and soy farmers. We right. need farm subsidies to be removed from factory farmers. And really it's a, it goes up to the highest level of government. Like the government is, is subsidizing food to make factory farm meat cheap and is actually paying farmers who have monocropped the heck out of their land to leave that land fallow in what's called the Conservation Reserve Program. So there's plenty of land to do grass feeding and grass finishing of all the cows in this country. This is one of the things that's most striking for people when they hear it. There's absolutely enough land and enough ability. There's a clear ability for us in the United States to do 100% of our animal agriculture, grass-fed and grass-finished. Every, like the, the majority of cows that we get, that we eat, spend 85% of their land, of their time on grass. And they go to a feedlot for the last 15%. If we just don't take them to the feedlot, the cows will be slightly smaller because they're not fattened on the grains and the other semi-toxic food for the cows, which means less return for the farmer. But they could be, every single cow could be grass-fed and grass-finished its whole life. It's not a, we're not required to do this inhumane treatment of cows. We just need a shift in the consciousness and we need to create a value proposition for people that helps them understand that it is worth paying more to support this type of agriculture that we believe in. Right. And that, that's the key. And that, so it's the, the main point there is that there's absolutely a way to do this. It's absolutely scalable. It's absolutely sustainable. It can be done. It's just a matter of helping people understand that you vote with your dollars. And if you want to be healthy, and I believe that eating grass-fed, grass-finished meat will create healthier humans, and you want the land to be healthy, and you want ecosystems to thrive, and you want your kids to have 
an earth that looks something like our earth in five or 10 generations, that's the only way we're going to do it. And it's not the fact that we can't do it or that we're stuck with factory farming. We are choosing to factory farm because places like Costco or Safeway are creating cheaper meat. And that's what people want. They're not understanding the ramifications of that. And the government is complicit. That, that's a big part. And I, I think like, and I, I don't like to point fingers and pass judgment on the people who are buying this, this cheaper meat or who are all for eating grains without eating meat because of the, the environmental aspect. What I am upset about is like, it's out of their control. I mean, the American government has made it so that you know, probably millions of American families put food on the table with this soy and corn and, and, and subsequently feeding that, those crops to other animals and stuff. It's like, I can't sit here and expect things to just change overnight all for the sake of what's better morally and everything. Because like, there's a lot of people that just live and die that literally are putting food on the table for their family because the American government has made it so, you know? So it's like, it's really, it's really a tough position to be put in. So. Absolutely. And it's, I think that it's, um, it does have to do with corn and soy subsidies and, and the fact that, that a lot of the food that we see in the grocery store is, is highly processed and very cheap. And I don't think the American public has been told the true story. We yeah. don't understand that you're paying for the processed food in other ways, that it's, that it's inordinately cheap because of your taxes, because of the because of the long-term healthcare costs and you're still paying for it in the long run. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a hidden cost. There's a big hidden cost with factory farm meat. There's a big hidden cost with processed food, but this gets into very complex sort of socio-political discussions about where we live in 2020 right. and what things look like and, and how things have gotten expensive and how hard it is for any individual to put food on the table, much less buy good food. I mean, what a tragedy it is when we cannot prioritize food that we're, we're just worried about keeping a roof over the heads of our families. Of course, I understand that people are going to choose cheaper food. Well, there's a lot of sort of system wide problems there that, that are making it very difficult. And it, it's, you know, nobody's getting rich making cows, you know, people are getting rich making processed food. So yeah. General Mills, Kraft, these companies are rich. They make processed food. There's not a lot of people raising cattle that are getting, nobody's raising cattle and getting rich like Kraft or, you know, Nestle or big no. agribusiness or Monsanto. So it's pretty clear who the real villains are here, you know, like, yeah. and we really, it would be a dream of mine to help create some shift there and help people understand that, Hey, these like the most healthy foods in the grocery store should be the most affordable for people. And that should be, you know, grass fed, grass finished meat and organs. That's what people need on their tables. And that's really why I do what I do. I'm not trying to convince everyone in the world to stop eating plants. My goal with the carnivore code and with this movement is twofold. It's to help people, number one, understand that red meat is not bad for humans. It's been a part of our diet forever, for 4 million years of hominid evolution. It's integral to human health, and it's been incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years based on really bad science. And number two, that plants exist on a toxicity spectrum, and that if people are not thriving, eliminating the most toxic plants could lead to profound improvements in their own health and the health of their family. So I just want people to be able to make better food choices and realize that well-raised meat is, is, is the health food, is the health food. And that needs to be affordable. If we could get more people eating well-raised meat and less people eating processed food, we would not, our healthcare system would completely turn around. 
I firmly I, believe that too. I really yeah, do. And I think absolutely. it's an important take home message is that take away the, 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 the protein content and the muscles and the performance and the, the eczema, whatever it may be, just the idea of the overall majority of Americans would be healthier. That, that really is an important take home message. We, we die because of chronic disease, you know, cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes. Most of these are correctable. Most of these are preventable. We know that insulin resistance, we know that metabolic dysfunction is at the root of so many of these diseases. And metabolic dysfunction is, a, is absolutely connected with the way that we live as humans, without a doubt. It's just staring us in the face. And this goes back to the beginning of our discussion. Western medicine can't see this, but insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction are correctable. And they're the result of an environmental genetic mismatch. And that environmental genetic mismatch is that we, our genetics are expecting us to eat like our ancestors. And even further back than 2000 years ago, you know, our genetics are really expecting us to eat like our ancestors from 50,000 or 100,000 years ago. And yet we're eating in 2020 and our bodies are like, what are you doing? We've never seen this food. This isn't real food. It's micronutrient deficient. There's processed oils. You're not eating these animals that were a real part of your diet. You're not getting these nutrients that we've seen for millions of years. And what is the result? The result is metabolic dysfunction, insulin resistance, which leads to diabetes, heart disease, stroke, cancer, all kinds of chronic illness, systemic inflammation imbalance. And it's, it's really all correctable. You know, I tweeted something yesterday, eat like your ancestors, not like your doctor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> unless your doctor is super healthy and you'll know, you know, and I should have written, you know, I think the second tweet I had was unless your doctor is radical. And I should have put like, unless your doctor has a six pack, don't eat like your doctor, eat like yeah. your ancestors did. And I think it's as simple as that. And, and we know pretty well how our ancestors ate. They didn't eat factory farm meat. They didn't eat a lot. They didn't eat processed food. They didn't eat refined vegetable oils and linoleic acid and things like this. They didn't eat processed sugar. It's so simple yet we're strapped in this position where most people can only afford those food, be, those foods because the government is subsidizing them. And so much of our economy now is based on farmers that are growing corn and soy. And it's like, why are we growing corn and soy? Right. <laughs> it makes no sense. I mean, we're putting ethanol in our gasoline and, and we're feeding the corn to, you know, we're feeding the corn to cows. It's like, there's, there's no point in growing corn and soy in this country. That's not the food we need. I, um, one thing that I found uh, incredibly um, impressive with you in comparison to other people in the, in the meat heavy diet world is that, you know, I've, I've uh, been experimenting with ketogenic diets or cyclical ketogenic diets, something similar to that since the mid nineties. But I like to live a, a very active lifestyle outside of just lifting weights and wanting a six pack. And, and I've found that, you know, when I pull my carbs and then my plant matter gets lower, um, I, I bonk out real hard in things like jujitsu and things like kickboxing and Muay Thai. I, I just, it's something that's really glycolytic. I find it really hard to deal with, but you, and, and also uh, Dr. Sean Baker, you know, the other big meat eating doctor, uh, you guys do really glycolytic stuff really well, a lot. And I'm, I'm always kind of like trying to do the math in my meathead brain uh, to understand how you guys seem to be in comparison to other like lower carb approach people to, to be so, so good at things like, you know, repetitive glycolytic movement. Well, there's a lot of nuance here and uh, mm -hmm. we can, we can dig into it. So for the first year and a half that I did a carnivore diet, I had zero carbs and from an athletic performance perspective, I felt great. And there's good evidence that 
there's a study called the faster study. They took athletes and they had these low carbohydrate athletes and they compared VO2 max and they compared fat oxidation and they compared glycogen storage and utilization, which is sort of the, the storage product of long chain carbohydrates in, in the muscles between these two groups of athletes. And the ketogenic athletes were keto adapted, meaning they'd been on low carbohydrate diets for many months. So what was interesting in the faster study was they showed after, I think the ketogenic diets had been eating low carb for six months. They showed that the glycogen storage and repletion was equivalent between the two groups. So what's interesting about human physiology is that though there looks to be a period of ketogenic adaptation, once you've gotten deep into it, two or three months, your, your muscles look about the same. You're still doing glycolysis. Mm -hmm. You're probably not doing the last steps of glycolysis and, and, uh, but you are doing glycolysis and it does look like glycogen is being utilized and made. And so, um, you can see that the glycogen levels go down and they get replenished in both groups equivalently. Now, the caveat to that in my own experience was that I added back carbs about five or six months ago, because I think that, I think a cyclic ketogenic approach is the most evolutionarily consistent and works the best for me. What I had found after a year and a half of zero carb was not trouble with performance, but I did have muscle cramps and I did occasionally get palpitations. So I think that your muscles will adapt, but without some insulin signaling when you eat, and you're going to get more insulin signaling with carbohydrates, it's very difficult for the body to maintain electrolyte balance and for you to hold on to sodium and therefore to hold on to magnesium and potassium. So I think most people will run into this on long-term ketogenic diets. And this is where I don't like dogma. I really try to not stay within a box. You know, I think that people within the carnivore movement find it very challenging that I can be very interested in animal-based diets, but also appreciate that carbohydrates can be beneficial for humans uh, mm -hmm. in a cyclic fashion. And so I, I don't fall, you know, I don't, I don't wear the dogma hat too much. I try not to be overly um, blinded by that kind of thing. So when I added carbohydrates back to my diet, I found that my cramps got much better and my palpitations went away completely. For me, the best carbohydrate has been honey, which you might consider to be an animal-based carbohydrate anyway. So I think you can still do a quote carnivore diet if we want to get, you know, if you want to split hairs about it with honey in your diet and you're not having any real plant products, it's from bees. So who knows? But um, I also, like I said, I'm not dogmatic about it. And in the carnivore code, I outline five tiers of a carnivore diet with tier one being including some of the least toxic plant foods. So in my book, the beginning part of the book, I talk about evolution and where humans have come from, the evolution of the human brain, how our brain got much bigger right around the time we started hunting. The second part of the book is about plant toxins. I kind of dig into all the different types of plant toxins. In the third part of the book, I debunk many of the myths about meat, that we need fiber, that it'll cause cancer, that it'll shorten your life. And in the end of the book, I have the, a lot of chapters about how to do a carnivore diet. And I talk about which plants I think are the most toxic and which plants are the least toxic. I realize that for the majority of people, they're not going to cut out all plant foods in their diet. But I do think that understanding which plant foods are the most toxic can be very helpful for people. And eliminating those while focusing on animal foods can lead to profound health improvements. So the tier one carnivore diet is really what I call a carnivore-ish type diet. And it does include carbohydrates in the form of what I think is the least toxic type of plant food, which is fruit. And evolutionarily, we see lots of evidence for this. There are many indigenous hunter-gatherer tribes that consume plant foods, but the majority of what they consume is fruit. Right. So there's not, one of the things that I found so striking, and I've interviewed Lauren Cordain, who wrote The Paleo Diet, 
and a number of anthropologists about this is that our ancestors didn't really eat vegetables. <laughs> Kale and broccoli and spinach, these are new inventions. Like eating, eating plant leaves makes zero sense evolutionarily. They're not very, they're really not very micronutrient rich. They have a few. They're not very calorically dense. And let's face it, our ancestors were after calories before anything. And they don't really have, <clears throat> they're not really very tasty. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever had plain kale. It tastes bitter and it's just not that good. Spinach is maybe okay, but as I talk about in the book, spinach is super high in oxalate. So lettuce, plant leaves in general and stems, <clears throat> these are survival food bar none, man. Nobody is eating this stuff if they don't absolutely have to to survive. And <clears throat> good luck getting any significant calories from spinach. It's just, it's a travesty. So, <clears throat> so I think that our ancestors have eaten animal foods, nose to tail and fruit for the majority of evolution. I think they've eaten fruit seasonally and cyclically. I think being in ketosis is a normal part of being a human. Even though I eat honey twice a day now with my, my meals, I'll check my ketones every morning when I wake up and I'm back in ketosis because of the way I structure my, my diet. So I'll eat in the morning in the afternoon, I eat about twice a day. I do time-restricted feeding. So I think our ancestors were almost certainly in ketosis every day, every other day. And I think having ketones is valuable for humans. We know they have epigenetic effects. They affect histone deacetylases and change the expression of our genes. People have talked about it with regard to AMP kinase and autophagy, but I don't think that humans were in ketosis all the time. I also don't think we were never in ketosis or that we were had this constant IV drip of carbohydrates. Insulogenic so, foods, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's impossible. If you've ever been in the wilderness, you know that there's, there's not a lot of carbohydrates in the wilderness. I mean, there's berries occasionally. If you find a hive, you'll get some honey. So I think our ancestors had carbohydrates. I don't think they had them every day, and I, but I don't think that they never had them either. So I've found that a cyclic ketogenic approach or a cyclic low carb approach works best for most people. Straight low carb all the time, I think is a very bad idea. I really appreciate Sean and his work, but I have some concerns and he and I respectfully disagree with each other right. about how we do it. Um, the other thing you'll see with long-term ketogenic diets is you'll see fasting blood sugar start to rise. So I did a podcast with a continuous glucose monitor uh, where I looked at my blood glucose while I was eating honey and the fasting blood glucose was very good. I would get some blood glucose bumps with honey, but they would come right back down. There was no evidence of insulin resistance with sugar, with this you know, natural sugar. Honey, that form, yeah. fruit, honey and fruit do not cause metabolic syndrome. They do not cause diabetes. It's very yeah. clear. Um, and I'm, I'm really having to educate the carnivore community about this and try and un, you know, allay undue fears. So I, I, I couldn't be the same way, but in more of the kind of traditional bodybuilding community where there's this, this fructose has been so um, demonized. And I'm like, you guys, really, it's not, it, it actually, if you really take the time to look at it, it's pretty appropriate for the system, you know? Absolutely. And there are, there are lots of good studies. I mean, John Sivan Piper has done a number of studies, a number of systematic reviews looking at all of the isocaloric uh, replacement of carbohydrates with fructose trials. Fructose, when, it, when fructose replaces carbohydrates isocalorically, it doesn't cause weight gain, it doesn't cause blood pressure to go up, doesn't cause what we might perceive to be um, you know, negative changes to lipid biochemistry, and it doesn't, change uric, doesn't cause uric acid to rise. And so fructose is a very biochemically consistent molecule. You don't wanna eat it in soda, 
You don't sure. want to eat it in, you know, processed food, but it's absolutely evolutionarily consistent to eat it in fruit. It's not bad for humans or honey. I mean, there's so much fructophobia out there. It's crazy. People get so dogmatic about this stuff. I agree. And uh, someone who is not dogmatic, someone who definitely knows what they're talking about and makes for a very, very interesting read. I've been lucky enough to read the Carnivore Code in an ebook form, but it is now available for you, whoever you are listening. And uh, I'm, I'm assuming available kind of everywhere books are sold, doctor. Yeah. You can go to thecarnivorecodebook.com. There's the first edition behind me if we're doing video. Nice. And yeah, it's out everywhere. And the other thing to know is that if you have trouble getting these organ meats, we've been talking a lot about micronutrients in your diet. If you have trouble getting these organ meats, check out Heart and Soil. It's a supplement company that I just launched, heartandsoilsupplements.com. We made these organ meats, liver and bone marrow and beef organs, and we've got lots of other ones coming into desiccated organ capsules. We'll have to get you some so you can try. And so, if you, yeah. yeah, if you can't get liver every day or you can't get bone marrow or you can't get spleen or pancreas or kidney, these unique micronutrients, we desiccated them. So we did freeze drying of these and we put them into capsules and it makes it so much easier to get these organs. It's kind of like the 2020 version of how your ancestors ate. I think it's important to get the organs as much as you can. Certainly fresh is better, but the desiccated stuff is about as good as you can get short of doing that. I think it's really going to improve people's health. But yeah. Check out if my you're book. just not if you're just not going to eat the the organ meats, which I fully understand, people listening, I, I do highly encourage you to check out this combo pack uh, that that uh, Dr. Saladino is talking about and at Heart and Soil because it is it's a mixture of the marrow and the and the and the liver and then also the kind of a collection of organs because look even if you're look even if you're not buying into the the whole idea of nose to tail and the health benefits overall. Old school bodybuilders have been cramming down organ desiccated pills for a long time. And there was conclusive, ample scientific proof that it was doing something. They were chock full of creatine. They were chock full of the heme iron that you're not going to get any other any place else. And those dudes had glowing skin, big heads of hair, and gigantic muscles and teeny ways. So I like just take it from a bro science standpoint. Like that's it works. That stuff is legit, you know. Vince Gironda was doing this 40 years ago. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Hey, uh, doctor, honestly, I, I'll, I'll let you go. And I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. I thought it was a fantastic conversation and uh, I, I'm just so happy to hear such a reasonable voice, such a, like a non-dogmatic voice, give this really helpful and uh, unique take on human nutrition. And uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter and I thank you for taking the time out of your day. Man, it's my pleasure. I only wish we'd had more time because mm. we just scratched the surface. So I hope people will check out Heart and Soil. We've got lots of information there. Check out my book. If you are interested in this in any way, shape or form, or even if you think I'm full of bullshit, you know, read my book and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try and convince you otherwise, because uh, there's a lot of information here. This is just the beginning and it's super fascinating. And I really think that understanding how humans are meant to eat, how you are meant to eat is, is the key to just living in the, in the most rich way possible. So thanks for the opportunity, brother. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. There you go. As they say in the business, there you go. They pretty much say that in, in every business. So, I, you know, just apply it to whatever. Um, heartandsoilsupplements.com is where you need to go to get uh, those uh, amazing nose-to-tail um, internal organ supplements. If you're not going to eat the liver, the organs, the, the I mean, um, the you know, the kidney, the heart, uh, which I get it. You're not going to eat that stuff. They have... Um, 
100% grass-fed dietary supplement versions of all the different organs and bone marrows and things like that. And it's heartandsoilsupplements.com. And find out more about Dr. Saladino. He is at carnivoremd.com. And the book is Carnivore Code. I really do recommend it. Like I said, even if you're not interested in the carnivore diet, give it a shot because it's a very good read. A very uh, He's a very well-informed guy, and he doesn't have an agenda, and I like that. And remember, in this crazy mixed-up world that makes you think that nobody cares, I do. Be good, people. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.